The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. David Tepper says, it's time to buy. Everyone is now an expert, aren't they, at calling bottoms. Panic selling, and well, we have panic buying. And a quick lesson on buying the dip. All this and much more on episode number 766 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Good day to you. Hey, Andrew Horowitz here, the host of the Disciplined Investor Podcast for over 15 years. I'm also the founder of Horowitz & Company, where we manage money for people just like you. So if you have any questions about what's going on, you're a little concerned about your portfolio, your 401k plan, your IRA, or maybe you're in cash and thinking that, well, is it a good time to invest and maybe I should do something about it right now? Well, make sure to go over to the disciplinedinvestor.com. And uh, send us a note. Go over to the Ask Andrew section or the contact area. You know what to do. Check it out. Plenty uh, of information there and plenty of uh, ways for you to get in touch as well. So um, I got to tell you something. It has been an incredibly difficult few weeks for investing. It is one of these moves that we saw two weeks ago where we have 600 points day on the Dow, 3% on the on the NASDAQ, we see that uh, one day it's up dramatically. The next day, it takes it all back. Then we see a follow-through of the selling on Friday. We see a follow-through into the beginning of this week. And then David Tepper comes out midweek and says we should be buying. And he's buying. And he's covering his shorts. And wow, a lot of discussion about what's happened with bonds. Rates shot up to almost 3.2% on the uh, 10-year and then clipped back. And just, you know, all the things that are going on right now. So I figured, what should I do? Well... There's a time to stay put in what you're doing, and it's time to make a lot of changes. If, in fact, you haven't already made a lot of the changes, maybe it's too late for certain areas. If you think about how drastic the markets have taken many stocks out to the tool shed, whipped them, beaten them, almost to a point of death, and then, you know, Took them right back again, beat them some more. <laughs> I mean, look at Peloton. Look at what happened to that stock where we saw that the stock is down, I don't know, 75%, 80% from its high over the last year or so. And they come out with earnings and they're down another 25%. And they climb back a little bit, but still. We see a company like Upstart which uh, is in the financial fintech area, which everybody's all excited about how AI is going to just change the world. That company comes out with earnings and it misses and provides a weak outlook, down 50% on the open. So here we are in a situation where we have a very mixed bag, where we are seeing that there is a significant amount of fear 
and some fear mongering going on right now in the markets. And a situation where there is really uh, what appears to be an absolute belief that we're not only are we going to enter into a recession, but things are going to get so bad that we need to hunker down and put our money into the mattress. Because if you look at what's gone on, there really is no safe class of asset right now that anybody's really looking to put money in. I mean, for, for the last few weeks, what we have seen is sell everything, whether it's gold, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it is treasuries or munis or corporates or anything except maybe to a degree, maybe some energy. But energy even succumbed to profit-taking towards the middle part of the week. And we saw what has gone on. Of course, the volatility that we've seen, the up and the down, every day is different. But the point is that right now there is a good, good amount of just absolute fear out there. And I talked to some people that I know, and I said, you know, how's, how's your 401k doing, for example? We don't manage their money. It's just some friends. And he said, I haven't looked. It's probably down a few hundred thousand dollars this year. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting that it's, for some people, nonchalant, where they just are okay with the fact that they're in it for the long term and whatever happens, happens, and we're going to have to deal with it. And there's others that panic and they start to think that this is the end and everything's going to zero. And it doesn't help that a lot of people on social media really try to stir the pot. I mean, the amount of people that are experts right now and calling the bottom, which are, they come out with all these different parameters that we need to see a capitulation and we need to see a um, absolute level of the put-call ratio moving to certain levels. And the RSI needs to get so oversold. And we need to see 90% down days. And we need to see people talking about how they're cutting down their overall estimates to levels that are not seen. And all these things that go into play, that may or may not be the case. The fact is that every single bottom is created differently. Every bottom is not the same. We don't have to have all those things. Is there usually some type of capitulatory action that goes on? Meaning that people just say, okay, the hell with it. Done. Sell me. I'm done. I want out. Yes. What does that mean? That means we have higher volume usually on a massively down day, usually. And then we start to heal when the reality is that we flushed out many of the sellers that were out there. Did this happen last week? Maybe. Very possible. Is there a um, any way to really judge just how significant the selling was to create this judgment call that that was the bottom? Very difficult, if not impossible to do, and wrong-headed fundamentals don't mean as much right now, but if you look at PE ratios and you look at peg ratios and you look at where we are, you look at the absolute returns on companies and what has happened to the obliteration of market cap and value and the ability for companies to maintain the potential for ongoing business like we're seeing in some names, now that's a problem. Those companies probably shouldn't be there anyway. Those levels that they had in terms of value, shouldn't have been there anyway. We all knew that, but you didn't want to admit it. 
They didn't want to admit that these things were crazy. Goldman Sachs this week. Goldman Sachs this week distanced themselves from the SPAC market that they helped create. Remember uh, the Chamath, the uh, SPAC Barker, I called him, where he came out with a significant amount of one-pagers, back-of-napkin white papers that were only one page on projected and pro forma on what this company would do. It was full of crap. But he set up the pipe, right, the, the private and public investment in these deals, took out huge amounts of profit for himself, sold out before he spit the SPACs out into the marketplace. Really a bad showing, sir. But here we are in a situation where there is this big concern that the Fed is only at 75 to 100 basis points on Fed funds and 50 basis points to come at the next meeting. And already we're seeing a 25% drop in the NASDAQ and a 16 or 17% drop in the S&P 500. And thousands of points a week are ripped from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Major companies losing trillions of dollars of market cap. Is that a bottom? I don't know. But I can tell you that I know long-term that if you have solid companies that have decent earnings that have projections to continue to do so, when you look at the side of the trend of where we are, which is definitely a downtrend for most of the market, not all, certain areas like energy, we'll just pick on that one as a, as a blatant example, has been in an uptrend for some time now. What will happen? Will that change? What if the war ends, oil drops, natural gas drops? What if, what if? Well, a lot of things can happen. Fact is that right now, it's not showing any change. We're seeing the NASDAQ and the most high, highly priced PE ratio, price to sales, price to book, price to, I don't know, price to air, companies have come down to reality. Here is something you need to know, generally speaking. There are times that the markets will allow you and let you get away with buying stocks that don't make money and have no path to profitability. That's a truth. But the fact of the matter is that when we get a dose of reality that sets in for one reason or the other, it's important to focus in on those companies that have sustainable profits, that the ability for them to continue to make money in many different market and economic situations is sound, is sound. Keep that in mind. Now, as I mentioned, with all that's going on, I decided to take a couple of days off this week. I'll be back in a couple of days in Arizona, Sedona. My son and I are doing our annual trip, which we haven't done for three years, taking a helicopter tour over the Grand Canyon, also to fund stuff, plan some wineries and vineyards and all that. What I did for this week was I asked our good friend Ryan Radisky to come up with some clips over the last year or two that really focused in on what we were talking about the Fed was going to do. You know, I do a lot of ranting about the Fed because they're wrong most of the time. But what I thought we would do is do a best of this week and really focus in on some of those comments and isolate the conversations I had over the last one and a half years or so about what the Fed was projected to do and what was the likely outcome 
of that. Of course, we mixed in a good amount of rants as well. So just a big compilation of things we've been talking about, some things that were concerning over the last year or so. Let's take a listen. I think it all happens to do with the whole idea of moral hazard. That's really the whole point here, right? The idea of moral hazard in a market, and they're created when there's uh, a belief that there's no risk. There's, there's, this, there's this kind of concept out there that, you know, if I invest in that and there's no risk because that person or that party is in fact going to support me, hey, why not? Let's put more money. You know, some people think of an arbitrage situation where there's, hey, there's no way I can lose money on this deal because I got this side, that side covered, and, they, and let's put a lot of money in it. Creating moral hazards because you think that risk will be, well, abated or just held down, I guess. And in this case we have right now, well, that, that risk that's being held down, that uh, kind hand that is holding it all up right now is the Fed. Now, said another way, moral hazards can exist when a party to a contract can, can they can take risks without having, have, having, they don't have to suffer consequences. So that's a big issue. So what you have right there is, I guess, the core definition of a moral hazard when it comes to investing. We're not talking about the, the rest of what goes on in the world, but when it comes to investing, with this whole idea with stocks only go up, don't listen to the suits. Again, creating a moral hazard. That's the definition right there. If we believe that stocks only go up, is that not what we just talked about? The whole idea, the essence of what a moral hazard concept is? And the end product of a moral hazard when it comes to investing is brokenness, losses. We all know this risk in the markets and the idea of the Fed really has their hand out to back markets. Okay, I got that. And they're really there for a pretty treacherous condition, something that is really off the charts in, in terms of uh, a, a systematic situation, not one stock or two stock. That's not what the Fed's there for right now, at least. But what they're there for is for a systematic breakdown and where they are able to provide a significant amount of overall uh, support to the markets but really in a blunt instrument style. Okay, so while they're there, maybe not in the short term, but the longer term that we have this whole moral hazard going on, maybe the short term nature of what we're doing right now, not a big deal, but the longer the condition goes on, the longer the Fed has the back of, well, we'll call it investors, but of the markets, of the economy, of the banks, of the bonds of the states, of the corporates. The list goes on and on and on because you know why? We have trillions of dollars to do so. And as long as we have that going on, the problem is that we have a ever-growing situation where the worse the moral risk will expand and the more people will get involved in margin and leverage up to a point that we will see when things get ugly, because there's always a cycle. I'm not saying it's tomorrow. I'm not, you know, listen, let's be honest with each other. If you really think that stocks only go up, what are you listening to this show for? We know there are cycles. 
Look at look at tech. Prices are yeah, they're 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 a lot higher than they were at the beginning of the year, or they were last year or whatever. But look at this significant sell-off. And if you bought at the wrong time right now, while maybe holding for the next two, three, four years may do well for you, or the next two, three months, the fact is this big sell-off that we sold, you know, 10% for Apple, 30% for Tesla. Why did that happen? We know we talked about this, a whole idea that SoftBank was pushing up the mega cap tech names with billions of dollars of call options, causing the sellers of those options to hedge and buy stocks, further pushing up the price of those stocks was a warning shot. I mean, right across the bow. And if you didn't pick that up when we started finding out about this last, let's call it Tuesday, late Tuesday, you're not paying attention to what's going on. And that's not you. You're a disciplined investor and you are doing that, but you may not understand it. So let me break it down and tell you what's going on with this. What's happened is, because it was very surprising to me when I saw those stocks, you know the names, you know, the, the FANG names and all that, just launching at the beginning of the week. And there was this, you know, when, when we started to see this happen uh, last week. Um, and there was kind of this... Uh, or two weeks ago, it was. You know the day I'm talking about where we saw that massive move of that, and we talked a little bit about this whole thing. But again, I just want to clarify. What happened was manipulation of the stock market by someone who had excessive amounts of money because they were being funded by the various central banks with a very low interest rate, causing what we talked about, a moral hazard. The moral hazard that was created was the, the thought that SoftBank could just push the markets unlimited to unlimited amounts in the limited uh, uh, directions with the the significant amount of money they had with no repercussions to the downside. Now, now we see that they are rethinking their option strategy. That was the latest news item that came out on Friday. But this is excessive speculation they put on with free money, money on the cheap with a seemingly unlimited supply. The fact is that, again, once we start believing that the data or fundamentals doesn't matter, it's time to step back and consider what's really going on, and that's what they didn't do. They bought right into their own uh, crazy notion that always goes up. And I'm not going to talk about this whole K-recovery conversation here, but you want to con consider right now that, yes, there is a differential, and this time is a bit different, although not, um, at least in the short term it is, but not, you know, you got to look at the longer term. Um, but you want to consider the social prices, that the, the, the social uh, uh, and and uh, not the prices, the um, the social and 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 moral risk that's involved in believing that stocks only go one way and that you have the Fed behind you is what's causing some of the excessive speculation, and it's created the port noise and it's created the soft banks banks uh, son, who is is you know building wealth in a quasi-pyramid scheme by investing more money in the same asset, pushing up the price yourself, hoping to one day get out of it by being sold to some sucker down the road at a much higher price. It reminds me of, 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 of two famous quotes, in what we just talked about, right? I just talked about this time is not the same, but if you remember, uh, Sir John Templeton said the four most dangerous words of investing are, this time is different.
And the other thing it kind of reminds me of is when Warren Buffett says he's going to tell you how to become rich. Just to shut the doors, be fearful when others are greedy, be greedy when others are fearful. All right, so, you know, we've been talking about the Fed. We've been talking about the Fed a lot. And the reason for that is that, well, I mean, they've been the main driver for the markets in terms of liquidity and assisting on the risk on sentiment trade. That whole idea that there's plenty of liquidity and, you know, if anything happens that's really bad, let's say in the credit markets, well, the Fed's going to be there to clean it up. Or when we look at some of the areas of the interest rate environment for real estate, well, the Fed's going to drop and keep interest rates really low for a long period of time. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time discussing this today, but I want to mention one point, and that was that the Fed had their meeting on Wednesday, and it seemed that it wasn't as well-received as other times. I mean, yes, once the Fed changed their pitch on how long they're going to have the zero interest rate environment, the ZERP, markets kind of moved up very nicely. But quickly, there was a reassessment of this, and that turned into another sell program that we saw for the end of the week. So maybe what happened was this, that originally there was this whole idea that there was going to be a zero interest rate bound on the markets and involved with the Fed's decision-making process through 2021. And now that they push this back a little bit, now that they move this to 2023, yes, 2023, we are now going to have zero interest rates or the zero to 2.25%. Maybe this was a moment that the market said, wait, what? Are you kidding? The initial impact from COVID with all of that really put a damper on anybody doing things. It was people were paralyzed in thought of, hey, what's going to happen next? How long is this going to go on? What does this mean? Not only for my health, but the economy and my own personal finances, my job, you know, the list goes on, right? All that stuff that went through that, those mental gymnastics that we all did back then about what is going to be the future here and there by everybody halted doing anything. Not to mention that anybody in existing homes that were trying to sell were thinking, you know what? I don't want anybody coming through my house. I'm not interested in anybody walking through those doors and possibly infecting me. But what happened? Well, Bazooka Joe came. Of course, that's uh, the Fed and Powell. And now you have ridiculously low rates on a mortgage. I mean, without trying hard right now, right? What can you get? Somewhere in the neighborhood of probably two and a quarter to 2.5%, 2, 2. somewhere around that. I mean, I just saw a 15-year that was at 2.25%. So let's take a moment with that concept for a second. And instead of just being a casual observer of the fact of what we're seeing right now, maybe be an active participant in saying, hey, maybe I should think about, and when I say the I, that's really you, should think about, could I refinance right now? I think the fiscal that we put out, 
the $3.2 trillion that was given throughout the various components in the CARES Act was probably a lifesaver for, for many. I mean, these low interest rates are great for businesses. It's good for long-term lending and for the country, for the economy long-term. But really, the average person, you and me, when we're in, 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 in financial need, I don't think any of us are going to stand up and say, oh, I lost my job, but thank God the Fed reduced their rates. I mean, does anybody really look at it that way? I don't think so. But they say, you know what? I lost my job. And fortunately, I'm getting X amount of dollars per week from either some kind of unemployment or some government program that will help me through this because it was a not a, not a not a for my reason that I was let go, but maybe the company collapsed due to the weight of all this, you know, lockdowns. Companies like Citi and U.S. Bank Corp and Goldman, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, they're all reporting next week. We should get a pretty good read-through on what's going on, right? Good insights as to what's happening. We're going to have updates on these loan loss provisions. That's going to be good. They're going to be telling us what the banks are really thinking, what they're thinking about the environment for many of the businesses that they service. They're going to tell us whether or not they see a stabilization in the economy from a business perspective, not just an economic perspective. Because what we've seen so far is, uh, I would say a little bit of a, well, some of the bad news is being covered by the stimulus that we've seen come in, particularly from the Fed, where they're loaning money at very low rates to small businesses. When I say small businesses, I don't mean super, well, they've given the PPP to small businesses, but I'm talking about small caps, you know, businesses under a couple of billion dollars, uh, $5 billion of market cap. So, you know, we have these zombies, right? These mid and small cap companies that have this massive debt overhang and not enough earnings to cover their debt. I mean, this is a big part of the small cap universe right now, the Russell 2000. But the good news is that they're able to tap these funds. They're able to go out and actually find funds available under normal condition. Well, not normal. Under the abnormal conditions that we have now, usually we would think that many of these companies would be find it very, very difficult to get funds because who in their right mind is going to be lending money to a company that already is having problems, already has too much debt, doesn't have the ability to cover their debt service. But lo and behold, we have the Fed that is buying corporate debt and therefore holding up the ratings and providing a very nice safety debt. All it's doing is prolonging their eventual failure. We know that. And then utilizing taxpayer dollars to, to do this. You know, this is the old pile of dog poo that's covered with a very generous coating of chocolate syrup. So when you look at it, it's like, well, that looks like a pretty nice ice cream sundae over there. You know, look, hey, chocolate covering, maybe even a cherry on top and a little bit of whipped cream. But let me tell you something, folks. You start looking at those financials, it's like biting into that pile. Not, not tasty. 
Okay, so we've been really digging down into this whole portfolio construction, this, this idea of diversification, the theory behind that. But there's a risk that we haven't really talked about. It's kind of invisible. And this risk is impactful. It's impactful on a portfolio. It's impactful on money every single day. It's one of those things that's kind of hard to detect. It's kind of like air, right? It's out there, but where is it? I know it's there, but I really can't necessarily see it unless I really look at it under maybe, I don't know, microscope or some other methodology. I can't really taste it because it's we're so used to it. It's there all the time, right? Can't smell it necessarily unless there's another odor in the air. It's, just, it's there. So this risk is ever-present in one way or another. And the other thing that's a problem is it's kind of difficult to guard against. So some of you may know what I'm talking about at this point. It's inflation. So all these other things we talked about, right, the risk of having uh, too tightly or un- a non-diversified portfolio and overlap and the idea of, of um, you know, news risk and all the other things. This one area is something we really need to focus in, inflation, because it is something that impacts and affects your buying power into the future. Now, a lot of times we hear right now, well, there's, there's no inflation, because it's lower than the Fed's 2% target, right? We've heard about this. Oh, nah, there's no inflation. Meanwhile, everything costs a lot more. We're finding that you, I mean, maybe not fuel, but we're finding that our insurance costs more, our housing costs more, maybe our water bill costs more, uh, food at the store to a degree, depending on what you're buying, costs more. I mean, here we are in a situation where we're being told on a regular basis that inflation is not a worry because it's below a level. But I want you to think about something. It's not zero. It's not zero. Therefore, there is inflation. It may not be above a level that is, quote unquote, concerning for the Fed in a way that they're going to have to tighten up because they see this runaway level of inflation. But there is inflation. We think that, oh, 1.5% a year, not so bad. But let's think about this for a second. Let's just take a moment and really focus on this whole idea. 2% annual inflation could definitely put a dent in your purchasing power over time. Because at 2%, just thinking about this very simply, very, very simply, your money's worth 20% less than it is right now in 10 years. Now, that's on a non-compounding basis. If we do it compounding, it's like 22%. Think about that. All things being equal, this level of 2% inflation that we are not concerned about, because it's not that big of a deal, right? It's only 2%. It's not the target of the Fed. It's The Fed says only get worried if it's over 2%. And now, even with their inflation averaging, they're saying, you know what, don't worry about it. Let's let it run hot for a while. They're not talking about the impact that it has on our ability to buy goods in the future. So if we say this another way, we think about this like goods on average, considering a 
broad-based diversification of what's in that basket of goods and concept and considering a an average of 2% is going to cost 22% more in 10 years. Now, you could do the math on other areas like, what, housing, insurance, education. I mean, these things have a much higher rate of inflation to begin with. And we get to the point that there's there's a level that we, we just can't ignore, this, in particular when it comes to savers. And what I mean by savers, when I talk about savers, I talk about those that are in their retirement. Let's just use retirement as an example. People on a fixed income. And why are they having such a hard time right now? I mean, I could give you stories, right, in the past. Um, but let, let's think about this. Right now, when money's in the bank earning 1%, inflation's at 2%, the relative value of the principal is eroding. We don't have to be uh, too up on mathematics, on economics, on investing theses and principles. If we have a 1% interest rate that we're earning and inflation is running at 2%, we're going backwards by 1% a year. It's like putting your money in a mutual fund. Think about this, right? So we put our money in a mutual fund, the XYZ mutual fund. They have a fee of 2% per year, and you're making a gross return of 1% a year. You're losing 1% annually. Kind of let's take that to the next extreme, right? We have a 5% inflation rate or a 5% fee on that ETF. And you're only making 2%. You have a net 3% that you're losing on an annual basis. That's not funny. I mean, that's, that's a serious situation where you're actually losing value on a regular basis to this invisible, you know, this, this kind of like thing that's out there that we really don't quantify as risk that often. But it's something we really need to confront when we invest because this, the notion, the notion that the ever-present level of inflation is out there. And we start thinking about a 40-year-old, which maybe has a 45-year life expectancy or more. And think about now compounding that only 2% or that 1.5% long-term. It really has an impact. Now, the question a lot of you are probably saying is, you know, do we have inflation? Is this something to worry about? Listen, if we think about Back to 2007, 8, 9, where we had this collapse of the financial, uh, the, the global financial infrastructure, right? And the financial system was on the brink. And the Fed and central banks around the world came in with gobs of money at low interest rates. And where did we see inflation? Everybody was all excited about the potential. Nowhere. But this is kind of important because you wonder why so many people back in the 90s, were plowing their monies into insane valuations when there was, um, you know, the thought of this whole inflationary environment. And, and, and when people were worried about, well, you know, different times they were thinking about, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm running for yield because then they were starting to think about at times that yields were going down. So depending on where we are in the cycle, right? And they start pushing money into things, chasing yield. Low-grade ones, lower grades moving forward, and if they couldn't get the yield, they would even go out further on the yield curve and get a even lower uh, overall quality bond. And therefore, what was happening was they were trying desperately to keep pace with inflation. They were desperately keeping trying to keep pace with their erosion of 
their purchasing power on their money, and therefore they had to. They were forced to, kind of like where we are now. We're forced to, 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 to reach for risk. We're forced to go outside the boundaries on some areas of valuations because we want to go for that. The reach for yield is real. The need to keep up income with higher price in the future is not fake news. So with yields this low, with inflation possible, what's the outlook over the next three, five, 10 years? I mean, do you really think that inflation is going to stay this low for a long period of time and that we're going to have yields that are in those levels for the next 15 years? Do you think that all the stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, that's entered the global economies is going to keep inflation at bay? And if not, how about some thoughts on where are some areas to invest in that may help? Not trying to say go put it all into stocks, but stocks in general are considered an inflation hedge. Probably not the ones you've thought about in the past as the obvious go-to. But stocks, generally speaking, are those companies that will continue to do well over time. And depending on... um, If we have inflation, which means the economy is heating up, that means, well, earnings should be better for many companies, right? Now, let me just mention one point here that could be very problematic. And that is, if inflation gets too bad, too high, too hot, and the Fed starts to choke off economic activity by slamming rates higher, that's really not the best thing for stocks. So if we have inflation that continues and it's kind of like this going over time, but not too bad, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. Well, then that's an area. We've seen that. We've seen that vividly over the last, what, 10 years. Very clear. There's also the second group, which is, we'll consider it tangible assets like precious metals, and commodities, probably being the two prime examples of something that you could actually touch. Gold, silver, copper, platinum. Historically, these have worked well as inflation hedges. You could even throw, if you want, maybe, ah, you could throw oil in there if you want. You could touch that. Now, where's the next place? Probably one of the Better places that I that I that I like overall, it's tips. Tips. These are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. So basically, it's a type of U.S. Treasury bond that is indexed to inflation in order to explicitly protect investors from inflation. And twice a year, the tips pay uh, a fixed rate. They pay the principal value of tips changes based on the inflation rate. Therefore, the rate of return includes the adjustable principle, the adjusted principle. So, so when you think about that, there have been times that there's been really nothing to gain on tips if inflation isn't, you know, if we have no inflation or minimal inflation. But year to date, the tips ETF is up uh, close to about 9%. And that's in supposedly a time that we have, right, we talked about this, little or or no inflation. And if you think about where we are today, as we talked about at the top and introduction of this whole topic today, 
it's not that we don't have inflation. We have inflation. It's just under the levels that are acceptable by the Fed. This arbitrary 2% that they and other central banks have now put on their inflation rate target is where we're below. But it still is inflation. So we see that year-to-date tips are up. One of the reasons is that people are buying bonds. Bond yields have gone uh, down, and therefore principal values have gone up. And, you know, when you look at this and you look at all bonds together, long bonds, short bonds, I mean, generally didn't well, well, especially because the Fed has been buying nonstop trillions, not billions, trillions of dollars worth of sovereign debt in the U.S., as well as corporate debt, as well as munis. We have a rising national debt now at about $27 trillion and counting. That's a problem. We know that if, in fact, rates go higher due to the fact that the Fed's balance sheet has ballooned to over $7 trillion worth of asset holdings, the impact, the effect of raising rates even I don't know, a quarter percent, a half a percent could cost serious money. Because as the government is refinancing that debt that comes due or issuing issuing new debt that they need to keep on running this massive deficit, it's going to cost more. The Fed is acutely aware of this, <laughs> right? I mean, they're like, uh, you know, listen, if we bring up rights. Uh, you know, one of the problems we're going to have is that uh, it's going to cost us an extra $500 million uh, on that bond. So they're, they're working very diligently at keeping these rates down. And we don't want the cost to go up for the government. As the cost goes up for the government, one of the problems you have is where do they get that money from? Surprise! You it's me. It's all of us. We're going to have to pay higher taxes. That's not something we want. I mean, it would be a lot nicer if we had less debt outstanding right now. It would be a lot nicer if this never happened, this whole pandemic. It would be a lot nicer if the financial crisis didn't happen. Okay, fine. I got that. But we are here, and what we have to deal with now is a situation that is pretty much irreversible, where we have massive amounts of debt outstanding, and the problem we have with regard to the... Uh, interest rates staying down for a long period of time, which almost forces the hand and makes even a better case for my understanding of where inflation is going to go over the next dozen years. Right now, this is why the Fed has been telling us that, you know what, we are not going to worry about near-term inflation. They are hoping against all hope that they can get some inflation going and keep everything balanced without raising their rates. So now if, you, if you've been worried about all the things you see out there and all the concerns that are going on and these cross currents that we, start, we talked about in the beginning and the news and the inability to find out where the real facts are and the election that's coming up and the pandemic, and I've just given you one more thing to worry about, and I apologize. I apologize. But my intent is actually... Not to make you paralyzed, not to make you nervous, not to put one more thing on your shoulders that you have to walk around with. But my intent is to actually inspire you to 
to try to get you to think outside of the markets and see what we see every day. Maybe even in a weird way, take a stroll into the future. Kind of look what's going on out there and how things are going to play out considering all that we know right now. So Ryan, again, once again, Ryan, thank you for that compilation. <laughs> that was fun. I, I think that um, when we look at all the things that are going on right now, I think we're going to do another one on inflation, a compilation of best of. I'll, I'll have it in a few weeks. But anyway, right now, uh, again, thank you, Ryan Radisky, for putting that together. Great job on this, as always. Thank you so much Give me an opportunity to take some time off and uh, still have a great show for you this week and every week. We'll be back again next week with some great guests. Jibba Shaughnessy is going to be our guest mid-May, uh, as well as some other folk that we're going to provide some great insights on the markets as we do the educational component of our financial sanity, we'll call it. Thanks for joining me this week and every week. I'll see you again real soon. in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training.